0: So we, uh, we really do have a lot to be grateful for in this nation. Probably we have nothing, uh, nothing greater to be thankful for than the fact that we can worship our God in freedom. Uh, the things that happen when we gather, uh, as we do as a church, matter, and they matter for all eternity. Uh, we can pray, and it changes the course of things. And for all of us here today, there's a sense in where um, we're grateful for all of those who have sacrificed and all of those who have served, and yet we can also serve our nation and honor the memory of those who have gone before by praying for this nation. Most of us recognize that our country is going through very difficult times as well as the world. And there are a lot of things that maybe you and I can do. We can certainly vote and we can give money to causes, and there are things that we can do like that. But coming here on a Sunday, worshiping the living God, Living as he calls us to live and praying for this country is the best thing that we can do for it. And there is nothing better than set before us. So I'd like to just take a moment and, and pray for our nation if I could do that. Father, I do thank you because every good and perfect gift any one of us has ever had has come from you. And that's true about this country that we live in and the freedoms that we have enjoyed. Father, we know those freedoms are coming under attack from a lot of different areas. And and yet, Lord, we know that um, you are greater than all of our enemies combined. And it seems to me that the best thing that we can do today is to pray for revival in this nation to pray that your spirit would once again go through this land, touching heart after heart after heart, that people would turn from their sin and turn to you, the living God. Lord, we understand and readily confess that there's not a person or program or party that can save this nation, though you may use any of those things, only you can save this nation. Only you can truly bless it. And so we ask that you do so. We pray that you would be with all the families who have lost loved ones in defense of this country and the ideals it stands for. We pray for all of those who serve, for your continued blessing and watch care over their lives. And we pray, Lord, that that epitaph that our enemies across the seas have placed upon us would indeed become true, that we would once again be the nation of the cross. And that Christ would be exalted in us and in our midst and honored even by our government and those who serve. that's our prayer today, in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Scripture reading today comes from the Old Testament, uh, the book of Joel, chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will be darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. You know, I remember uh, hearing the story of a young boy who had just heard, for the first time, read to him out loud, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, one of the Anarnia tales by C.S. Lewis, in which the king of beasts, Aslan the Lion, is put to death by a witch on a stone table in order to save a little boy named Edmund, who was in her power. And after hearing that story, that youngster was asked what he thought about it, and he said... I know it sounds strange, but it reminds me of Jesus dying on the cross to pay for our sins. And, of course, that is what the story really is all about. That little boy saw the truth and the symbols of the lion, which is Christ, and the stone table, which is the cross, and the witch, which is sin or Satan, and boy, uh, Edmund, who was in need of a Savior, which is really all of us in this room, and indeed all across the world. Uh, he couldn't have said much more about it than he had already said, but he understood, and the symbolism spoke to him. And the Narnia tales, they're they're children's stories, and children's stories when they're good children's stories, as all of us ought to know, are really stories for adults uh, who still have a childlike heart. And so we can read those stories and appreciate them maybe even more than the children can. So these stories are obviously symbolic, and it's fairly easy for us to see that and understand it when we're reading those books. It may take an adult mind to explain it but the meaning behind it really is readily accessible to all. And when we come to the book of Revelation we come to something that really is full of symbolism and it's definitely an adult book requiring an adult mind to begin interpreting it or explaining it. The book's full of Symbolism, but not everything in it is symbolic. Some things simply really are what they appear to be as recorded in the book, and most people agree that they are that. So the return of Christ and the great white throne judgment uh, are just what they appear to be in the book. But I, I don't know anyone who thinks there will be a drunken woman riding on a dragon, drinking blood from a golden goblet. Everyone understands that's symbolic, a teaching of some other kind of truth. And then there are things that could be literal or symbolic. And, And it's not always easy to tell which is which. Not long ago I mentioned the eagle of chapter 8 which is flying in the sky that was warning of the coming woes and I I told you then that I thought that was symbolic. I still think that. Uh, But I know it could happen Uh, uh, and some popular works really present it as a reality, as though that's really going to happen. An eagle will fly in the sky to warn people of the coming woes. Yet even though there are some things we don't understand in Revelation and there are some things that people disagree about, there's still an awful lot in it that we can appreciate that speaks to our hearts, even if our intellect is still struggling with it. And this book of Revelation is about the end times, but it's not just about that. What we read here when we come to this book It applies in some ways uh, to us in our days. It applies to our times. Even those things which are literal uh, truths uh, that will happen in the future represent things to us, truths to us in the here and now, if only we take the trouble to see them. Again, it's an adult book for adult minds, and we have to do a little work to get the gold from it, but it's worth the effort. And the text that we're going to look at today is really very highly symbolic, and it deals with the end times. Actually, it deals with the end part of the end times, the tribulation part, the end of that. But it has something to say to us here today. So I'd like to invite you to turn with me there now to the next section that we're going to investigate as we make our way through the book of Revelation. It's uh, Revelation chapter 10. Uh, Of course, we'll get the text up on the screen for you as we make our way through, but Revelation chapter 10. Now, when we left off uh, last time, we had seen uh, where six of the seven trumpets had sounded, and we looked at the events that were associated with them. And as a reminder, we will look at the seventh trumpet together with the seventh seal and the seventh bowl, So that's going to come later on. But it becomes quite clear as you spend time in the next two chapters, in chapter 10 and 11, that they're really about things that occur sometime during the sounding of those first six trumpets, sometime before the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And in fact we're going to see that there are even more things going on at that time than just those two chapters, but they they form a kind of unit and chapter 10 is our subject for today. So in this chapter John is still in this vision concerning the end times. But now the scene changes from this demonic, inspired war on humankind of the sixth trumpet to an angel of great power and majesty who's on the right side of things. And as usual, this message, this angel comes with a message. And so we will begin where John does as we read his description of the angel. Verse 1, of chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. So this angel is not falling as the angel associated with the fifth trumpet fell. Instead, he's coming down, and he's coming down with a message. We continue reading. He was robed in a cloud, and a rainbow was above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. And John calls him, mighty as well he might looking at a being whose face is shining like the sun at midday and whose legs look like fire he was mighty but he was also large when you look at the clouds in the sky you don't always have a sense of of just how big they are but if you imagine one of those clouds as a robe for an angel you begin to get a sense of how big he was. And as far as the rainbow, you know, they start down low on the horizon, and they arc all the way to the top of the sky. And and so to say that rainbow was above his head means that they're in the same frame of reference, they're in the same field of vision. Again, it's pointing to just how enormous this angel was, as does the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3, where it says he planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he gave a loud shout like a roar of a lion. It's a big voice for a big being as he towers over above the land and the sea, showing in a pictorial way his authority over the entire world, at least as far as his message is concerned. Of course, there's more than just size that's going on here. Uh, One of those things is something that's not immediately obvious, not until you take a map. And, And looking in that general area of Patmos where John was in exile, and if you pace that angel's left foot on the mainland in that general area and his right foot on the sea, you realize that the angel is turned almost 180 degrees away from Rome. His back is toward that city, and he's looking almost directly at Jerusalem. So whatever message this angel has, he has nothing at all to say to the world, to that system which is arrayed against God and his people, which is represented by Rome. Everything that he has to say is aimed at those who should at least know better, who ought to represent God to the world, and it's aimed to the faithful, and to any who will listen. So just what does this uh, angel have to say as he faces Jerusalem? Well, before we find that out, John tells us something else that happens just before the angel speaks. And it's one of those things that arouses our curiosity, but simply leaves us hanging. Right after the angel said in that loud voice, we read in the middle of verse 3, when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and don't write it down. Now, I don't know what the seven thunders are. Maybe, as some thinks, it represents the voice of God or, or angelic powers. I, I don't know, but, but it reminds me of a of a game I used to play with Ann and the kids back when I could get away with it. <laughs> I would start to tell them something, and then I'd say, well, maybe I better not tell you. To which they would reply, oh, Dad, or Larry, you have to tell me now. You can't do that. You can't start to say something and then not finish. And we'd go back and forth, and I'd say, well, I don't know if I should say anything. And they'd say, oh, yeah, I've started. you got to tell me, or... Or, or I hate it when you do that. At least that's what used to happen until they figured out I was just having fun with them. And so now I kind of have to find uh, my fun in other ways. They simply say to me, well, tell me if you want to or not. It's okay with me. But although this might remind me of that little game, it really isn't like it at all. You know, we never do find out what the seven thunders say. We, we know they said something. We know they said something that John could understand and that he could communicate to other people because he was going to write it down, but he was told not to. This is no joke. There's, there's a reason for it. It reminds one of what Paul said in Second Corinthians 12, speaking about a vision that he had of heaven. He was caught up in paradise. and He heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell where Jesus on his last night on earth when he said to the disciples, I have much to say to you more than you can now bear. See, there are things that are and are true because they are, but which we cannot really understand yet. And there are other things at this point in our existence which should harm us and not help us. Yeah, we used to understand that about um, about human sexuality. I mean, we used to protect kids from being exposed to that at too young an age because we knew that it certainly wouldn't help them at that time and in all probability it would hinder their development as it kind of short-circuits their childhood to some extent. Now it's pushed on them and us and... And whether we like it or not, we, we have to talk to them about it long before we otherwise would, because it's better to hear the truth from us than the distortion of the world. And I want you to know, I'm not talking about the distortion of the world that some other kid might tell them. We've always dealt with that. Now we have authority figures distorting God's truth about sexuality. And we have no choice but to talk to our kids. But this text teaches us that it's good for us to know that we don't know everything, and that in the state we presently are in, we can't even know all that we even should one day know. And that's not a trick. That's not a game. That's the truth. And we need to know that. But this thing with the seven thunders does something else. It really does point away from itself, away from those things that we can't yet know. And and we're not going to know them until we get to heaven because the only way to find them out is through God. And he's not talking right now. But we will know them one day. But, but because there's no way to find out other than that, it points away from itself. It points us to those things that we can know, to those things that God wants to reveal to us now, the things that... John goes on to tell us about in the rest of the chapter. And, you know, there are at least three things that we're going to learn from the chapter. There's there's no doubt other things here, but for our purposes today, we're going to look at these three. And the first thing is found in something that we skipped over in our reading. And and in a sense, it really is what this chapter is all about. And we could summarize it by saying this. God has a message that he wants everyone to to hear. And of course, if he wants you to hear it, he wants you to respond to it. That's the first thing that we learn in this chapter. God has a message for everyone. Just know what that message is. uh, We'll note briefly later. But for now, we just need to understand this, that God wants to communicate with people. There are things he really wants everyone to know. And we find that stated symbolically in the very first sentence of chapter, of verse 2 of chapter 10, which we Well, now read. Hey, that is, that mighty angel that John has described for us was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. See, that scroll contains a message. Now, I want you to notice something. It's not rolled up. It's it's open. It's not sealed with seven seals like that scroll which Christ took from the right hand of the Father. You remember in that vision in the throne room in chapter 5 that No one in all of creation could open but Jesus Christ himself. This scroll is already lying open in the angel's hand. That's how it came to us, open for all to read what is there. And John isn't told to to seal it up as he was instructed to do with the seven thunders. It's there for everyone to read, to know. It's not a secret, and it's not intended to be kept a secret. Maybe you could think of this as kind of a giant, you've got mail notification. It's not the message itself, but you know it's there, and you, in this case, know where it's from and who it's from. And it really is for everyone. See, that angel standing on the sea and on the land really is given an authority in this matter over the entire World. His back may be to Rome, but it's what the city represents, not the people who are in the city. And if that vision of that angel towering over creation with an open scroll lying in his hand had only one takeaway, it would be that God has something he wants everyone to know. That's really the first thing we see in this vision. The second thing that we ought to know is how this message that God wants everyone to hear gets delivered to those who need it. And the answer really shouldn't surprise you. We, (laughs) you and I, are the ones who's tasked with taking that message to people. That's what we see in verses 8 through 11. Then the voice I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and I asked him to give me the scroll. So so John hears what he's told to do, and he simply is obedient to God. He's told to go to take the scroll, and that's exactly what he does. We're not told anything about how he feels. I, I imagine it took a certain amount of courage to, to do what he was told, to walk up to a being of that kind of size, even if it's in a vision. And yet, however he felt, he followed through and after John took the scroll we read that he that is the angel said to John take it and eat it it'll turn your stomach sour but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey and I took a little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it and sure enough it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth but when I had eaten it my stomach turned sour and again here John does what he's commanded to do Verse 11 tells us why he's done all this. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. You see, the message that God wants all people to hear comes through us. We take the message to the world. We take it to everyone. You see, for us to be effective messengers, we have to have partaken of the message ourselves. That's what it means by eating the scroll. It's a symbolic way of saying that we have the Word of God inside of us. We've digested it, it's part of us, It's, it's who we are. And we know both the sweet and the sour of God's Word. It's sweet to us. I mean, it's good, it's nourishing, it brings life to us. But it requires us to change that which is holy cannot dwell with that which is not. And so the sin in us reacts and it rebels. and We struggle against his word, but God prevails. And we also know the sweet and the sour because when we share God's word with others, you know, some hear, and they listen, and they want to hear more, and eventually they put their trust in the living God, and that just seems so good and so sweet to us. And others hear, but they don't listen, and they turn away and even revile us, and that's sour, and it breaks our heart. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Second Corinthians, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing, to the one we're the aroma that brings death to the other we're an aroma that brings life and who's equal to such a task who indeed but that's exactly what we are called to be and to do we know both the sweet and the sour of God's Word and no one else can be as effective as people can be as messengers to bring the Word of God to the lost Now, angels really cannot do it. They can bring a message to those who have been prepared to hear a message from an angel. You know, on the night that Christ was born, the angels appeared to shepherds in the field, not to the folk in town, because although the shepherds were afraid, they'd been made ready, and then they went and they shared it with others. In all likelihood, if those angels had appeared in the town, people would have simply fled in terror. Just not everybody is able to hear what an angel would say. And angels, good angels, the only kind that would bring God's word to us, don't know what it's like to sin. They don't know what it's like to be separated from God and all that's good. They've never felt the weight of guilt. They've never known Failure, that awful knowledge that by our own selfish and sinful actions we've hurt those we ought to love and protect. I can't know the wonder of being forgiven or the joy of having been on the outside and in the darkness only to be brought into the light where everything is good. I can't know what it's like to have been an orphan all of our lives and then to be made a part of a family that will never end. But we can know it. And we've experienced it. And we can tell those still on the outside in a way that they can hear and understand and maybe respond to and come in out of the darkness, the nighttime, into the light, into the daytime. People need other people to bring the message to them. That's, that's why God became a man. He didn't become an angel. He became a man because he wanted us to hear and to come to him for life. And so this message is for everyone, but people need us to bring it to them. The third and final thing which we see in this passage is that there is an urgency to our task. You see, we've been given a message for the world, and we need to take it to them. Because a time is coming sooner for some and later for others, leading up to a time for all when they cannot hear the message. That's what the angel who had the scroll says to us in the world from verses 5 and 6. Then the angel had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever who created the heavens and all that's in them the earth and all that's in it and the sea and all that's in it and we we'll stop right there for a moment. Again, we're reminded of this angel's authority over the entire earth as far as this message is concerned. And when he raised his Right hand to heaven is a very picture of someone taking an oath. I gave testimony in a court one time, and I, I raised my right hand, and I put my left hand on a Bible, and I affirmed that what I was going to say was true. And that's what this angel is doing right here. He's swearing by the living God. Uh, and he refers to him as uh, the one who has life in himself, who lives forever and ever, who created everything, the heaven and earth and sea and everything else besides, that what he's about to say is true. The angel's not saying that the angel himself will do all of this, but it will be done. Man, as we see, we will see, God will act, and that God himself will say, it's time And he will close the door. We continue reading at the end of verses 6 through uh, the end of verse 7. The angel swore there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants the prophets. The sounding of that seventh trumpet in the last days will be the final opportunity for people to come to Christ for salvation and eternal life and forgiveness of sin. But in our day, time is running out for people all around us, even now. There will be no more delay, and the Greek simply means there is no more time. Scripture says to us, today is a day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next year. People's hearts grow harder, not softer with the passage of time. course, the seed has to be planted, and it needs water, and it needs time to take root and to grow. We don't need to be digging around in the ground to see if it's growing. We want to water and we want to pray, but the seed has to be planted first. You know, there are about 20 references in the New Testament to the mystery of God, and and there's a good deal that can be said about it, it, but it can be summed up this way. The mystery of God is this, that he chose to save sinners, to save everyone who would come to him and accept his offer by sending his one and only son to die in our place. That'll be accomplished one day. It means that everyone who will come has come. The day is coming when the door will be shut. Night is coming when no one can work. None of this is new. None of this is strange. If we know God's word, we know this. It has, after all, been announced to God's servants, the prophets who proclaimed it and wrote it down for us, just as this angel has said. The message really is for everyone. God sent his son to die for our sins and to save us from eternal death and damnation. People need to bring that message to others. And today is the day of salvation. Night is coming. The door will be shut. And those who are on the outside will be lost forever. All of humankind, every one of us, has been made in the image of God. And all of those images have been marred by sin so that every part of us is infected and we can't help ourselves. And so God did for us what we could do not do for ourselves. He sent us under the cross to pay for our sins. For those of us who have come to that cross, for those of us who have put our faith in Christ and our trust in the love of God, we're having the image of, of God renewed in us. We're being made every day more and more like our Savior who came to rescue us. And if we've been made more like Him, we should go to those who are made in the image of God, whose image is marred by sin, who can't help themselves, And take the message that saved our eternal soul while there's still time, while it's still light outside, before the door is closed. That is God's word to us today. The God who spoke the worlds into existence still speaks today. Are you listening? And will you act? I leave you with that two questions.